Hey, Damien, aren't you thankful for the cross tonight? Amen. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. And before you get confused, yes, we are starting our series in the book of 1 Kings. But 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we're going to start tonight. Uh, tonight is the introductory part of this new series, and I'm looking forward to this. I, I think this is going to be awesome. Any book of the Bible is pretty great, I think. Uh, but uh, going through 1 Kings, I'm really excited about this. And um, since it is the introductory part of the series and of this book, we're not going to really be able to dig into verse 1 right off. And we'll do that starting next week. But we will go to a few passages in this book and uh, other places just to help us understand the backgrounds of the book and help us know what's going on. And uh, I think any time you begin to go through a new book, I think it's, it's really important to first take the time to just find out, okay, what is going on? What is the background? Uh, and, and it's important to just take the time to discover the surrounding circumstances and key factors of the book so that we know the context. And uh, this will help shed light as we go on, and, and it helps shed light on Scripture just knowing the context. A lot of problems and misinterpretation problems with Scripture would be saved if we would just know the context and what is going on, and uh, that's why we're going to do this. So we all know that the last book that we were going through on Sunday nights was the book of Joshua, and we saw in the book of Joshua that God's people conquered the promised land as he promised that they would in Genesis and Exodus, and then after that, uh, after uh, they conquered from Joshua, we have Judges, and in Judges, several figures such as Gideon and Samson, they led the nation. Uh, and there was a total time in Judges of about 400 years, but in Judges, the nation of Israel was in a downward spiral, and they needed a godly leader. We know that it was just a vicious cycle, right? They, they would disobey God, they'd fall into idolatry, they would repent, and it was just on and on and on it went in the book of Judges. So after that, you have 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, where we are going to look briefly this, uh, this afternoon, you find the account of Samuel. And during the time of Samuel, the Israelites wanted to have a king so that they could be like the other heathen nations. And look, whenever you want to be similar to a heathen or a heathen nation, you're asking for a terrible thing. Uh, you don't really want to be like everybody else. Let me just say that right now, okay? Uh, but the Israelites, they were warned against having a king by Samuel himself, and that's where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel Let's look at chapter 8, Look at starting with verse 10. We'll read a, uh, several verses in this passage in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Look at verse 10, and then we'll pray. The Bible says, And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties. And he will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make uh, his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. 
He will take the tenth of your sheep, and ye, and ye shall be his servants, and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for your word. I pray you speak to us. Uh, I pray that you just help us to get something from this, even though it is introductory. I pray that you just uh, work in a mighty way uh, through the preaching of your word tonight. And I pray you'll just be honored and glorified in everything. In your holy name, amen. So, again, the Israelites, they didn't want to judge anymore. They wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to be like all the other heathen nations. And as we just read, Samuel, he warned against this. And he told them, hey, if you get a king, then everything in the land really belongs to that king. He explained that if they have a king, hey, look, he can take your daughters, he can take your fields, he can take your vineyards, he can take your animals, he can take whatever he wants. Nothing could be denied if the king requested it. And he explained that, hey, look, the king's going to take the best men, and he's going to put them to work for him. He'll take a tenth of your sheep, and they're going to serve him. And he just warned against them, hey, look, if you get a king, then one day you're going to regret it. And one day... You're going to cry out to God, and guess what? God's not going to listen to it, because you wanted a king. But even still, they said, well, we still want a king, so please give us a king. Look again uh, down at chapter 8, but look at verse 19. It says, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And by the way, let me stop there and say, it wasn't really the voice of Samuel, it was the voice of God. Whenever you deny the voice of God, again, you're getting yourself into trouble. And it says, and they said, nay, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So the Israelites, they rejected the godly advice of Samuel. They refused to obey. They wanted an earthly, physical king instead of having God be their one true king. And they were persistent in their desire to have a king to rule over them. And uh, later on in 1 Samuel, we're not going to go there, but we, we would see, if we were to read it, the story of the reign of the first king of Israel, which is Saul. In 1 Samuel, you also would see David kind of loom in the background as the king to come. He was, he was there, but uh, he wasn't the king. And then the book of 2 Samuel is the story of David's reign as king. Now, we know, we, we've gone through Psalms, we've been going through Psalms in, on Wednesday nights, we know that David was a godly man. He was a man after God's own heart, and uh, we know he had his problems, we know that at times he was deep into sin, uh, until God dealt with him, but he was God's chosen king. And then in the beginning of 1 Kings, David's reign is coming to an end as he is old and not well. So let's go ahead and look at 1 Kings. We're going to look at a couple verses here, but again, we're not really going to dig in. But look at 1 Kings chapter 1. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 1, look at verse 1. It says, Now King David was old and stricken in years. And they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. Now let's go to chapter 2 and look at verse 10. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10. So we see he's old in the book of Kings. And then in chapter 2, verse 10, we see his death. Look at verse 10 there. It says, So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. So as we enter into 1 Kings, the only two kings up to this point was Saul and David. 
Now this book, the book of 1 Kings, it forms a sequel to Samuel, really. Uh, it's really a continuation of the history of the kings from the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. And uh, the Jews, they actually consider 1 and 2 Kings a singular book of the history of Jewish kings. Uh, we, of course, in our Bible, it's separated, but the Jews, they see it as a singular book. And what we're going to find and see in this book, in the book of 1 Kings, the same thing with Joshua. It's not fairy tale stories. It's not false accounts. It's historic and it's accurate. Okay, this is a, these are historical events. A lot of times we treat these uh, these things in the Old Testament, these great things that God did, as just Sunday school stories. We treat them as if uh, you know you know maybe when we were a kid we could talk about it, but no, look, these are real things that God really did. So we need to pay close attention uh, to them. It's historic and it is accurate. But the Book of First Kings. It covers a period of around 118 years, and between the two books, First and Second Kings, there are over 400 years of history. Now, the date that this was written started anywhere between 561 B.C. to 538 B.C., uh, but if you were to just uh, think of the time of Joshua, okay, where we were in Joshua, from the time that the events with Joshua happened to the time that the book of First Kings happened is about 500 years. So we're 500 years removed from the book of of Joshua that we were seeing on Sunday nights for quite some time. But the, the author of this book, it's not specifically named, but the Jewish tradition actually proposes that uh, the prophet Jeremiah wrote this book, but it's not very clear. It doesn't specifically say that, but that's what Jewish tradition tells us. But whoever the author was, he was in exile in Babylon, and he was communicating lessons of Israel's history to those that were in exile. Now what he was doing was, in this book, he was teaching why God's judgment had come to them. Now understand this. Whenever God's judgment comes, it comes for a reason. It doesn't, God just doesn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm going to strike down thunder and lightning and kill everybody. No, there's a reason for it. It's not random. And that's what we'll see. But in this wonderful book, we're going to see several things. We'll see... The kingdom protected and enriched and divided and destroyed. And uh, there's just so much in this book that we're going to look at. But uh, we will see the split of the northern kingdom uh, with the southern kingdom. And we'll see that the northern kingdom did not have godly kings like the southern kingdoms did. And, and you may be here tonight and you don't really have much of a clue about first kings. Well, if so, that's okay. Keep coming. <laughs> we're going to learn. We're going we're gonna to see a lot. But uh, I want to just give you a, a quick breakdown before we get into a few things about the themes of the book. A good outline of this book, the book of 1 Kings, is as follows. Um, in chapter 1 and 2, we'll see David's death, as we already briefly looked at, and Solomon's ascent as king. We'll also see Solomon's wisdom and government in chapters 3 and 4. We'll see the building of the temple and palace, which will be very interesting, in chapters 5 to 8. We'll see Solomon's wives and his downfall in chapters 9 to 12. We'll see the northern tribes revolt in uh, chapter 13. We'll see the deeds of the king of Israel and Judah. Uh, as they're split, the split kingdoms in 1 Kings 14 to 16, we'll see the ministry of Elijah in 1 Kings 17 to 21, and we'll see the kings of Israel and Judah and Ahab's death in chapter 22. Now, as I said, this is historical. There's a lot of good stuff in here, and it is important to learn and understand history. It's important to learn and understand biblical history. If we can look back at what has happened in the past and learn from it, you know what, that's going to help us in the present and in the future. And we should never ignore certain books of the Bible, but rather uh, learn what we can from each and every one. 
And the historical books of the Old Testament are certainly not boring. You're not going to find this boring. I mean, just like the book of Joshua. Again, I kind of go back to that. Man, that was not boring. There was a lot of good stuff in that. Uh, but sometimes the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings gets overlooked. And again, I think that the average believer is probably pretty ignorant about this book. So I think we're going to learn a lot. But as, as I prayed about and, and considered, okay, to the Lord, what, what book should we go over? Because I don't just open up the Bible and say, here we go, new series, going to be an Esther or whatever, right? No, uh, I, we pray about it. I pray about it and ask God for that wisdom. And I had several in mind, but I ultimately obviously decided to go to the book of 1 Kings. And one reason that I saw this as an option to begin with was because when, whenever we are going to go through a book, I think it's something that should be relatable to the state of the church. Now you might say, okay, well, I don't understand what you're saying. Well, without a doubt, and I thank God for this, since before I got here, and even up to this point, the church, the Lord really has truly kept our church in a wonderful state of unity. Very, very united, and, I, and I'm so thankful for that. I believe that things are going well, and things have been going well, and no doubt as an American church, I think that we could be seen as a, a prosperous church. We're not lacking things, man. We, the Lord's blessing us. He's given us a lot. Uh, we're really blessed in the grand scheme of things, uh, not just spiritually, but physically, and we're able to uh, support many missionaries, and I thank God for that. God's blessed us financially. We can do outreach. Look, we can, if we need to go out and do something, we can go out and do it. Man, we, we can go do outreach events. We can put on events for uh, lost people to try to see them come to church. We can uh, put on different events and help out missionaries with needs as they come up, and praise God, we do that. Overall, things are good. Things are going well. And, and by the way, uh, the, the, uh, going back to the unity, of, the unity of the church, I think that this group of people that we have here is a delight to be a pastor to. I really mean that. And I think that the people that we have in this church are wonderful people. And it's great. But the book of 1 Kings, it was written in a time of prosperity and peace to start out with. In the beginning of the book, everything was going well. Things were off to a great start. And even several chapters into the book, things were really good. It was a time of prosperity and unity and peace. Let's go ahead and look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 9. Look at chapter 9. Look at verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 9. The Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 9, starting with verse 1, it says, And it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all Solomon's desires which he was pleased to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he appeared unto him at Gibeon. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me, and I have hallowed thy house which thou hast built, to put my name there forever, and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked, in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and wilt keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them, and this house which I have hallowed for my name 
will I cast out of my sight, and Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among the people. And at, his, at this house, which is high, everyone that passeth by it shall be astonished, and shall hiss, and they shall say, Why hath the Lord done this unto this land and to his, this house? Look at verse 9, And they shall answer, Because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them, and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought upon them all this evil. So, right here, okay, that, that first verse that we read, it shows us that Israel, they were in a time of prosperity, they were in a time of wealth, in a time of unity. They built the temple, which, by the way, was no cheap building. It wasn't just a, a few pieces of wood and they you know, make, a, make a roof. No, it was very expensive. This was not cheap. It, there was a lot to it, and we'll see that in time. But Solomon, as we see here, he was, uh, God appeared before him the second time. He was hearing from God. Things were going good. And, and God said to Samuel, hey, you need to keep the ways of God. Just like your father David did. And everything will be okay is basically what that message was. But he warned that if they turn from his commandments and they serve other gods, then destruction will come. So look, in the middle of uh, prosperity and in the middle of peace and in the middle of unity, God warns them of this falling away. He warns them of that. And as we're going to see... In time, prosperity and peace, it resulted in a turning from God in this book. Now, often, unfortunately, that's how it works. A lot of times, man, things are going great. There's peace. There's unity. Needs are being met. The people of God are being provided for. But then instead of relying on God like we should be because everything's just so awesome, what happens? We begin to rely on ourselves, and in turn, we turn away from God. So the fact is, though, as individuals and as a church, we need God when our church is united, when there's money in the bank, when everything's going great, just as much as we need God when we have nothing and everything's a disaster. We always need God. You understand that? You always need God. So one reason that this book was even an option was, again, because like I said, the, the setting of the book is similar, I believe, to the state of our church. Things are going well. God's blessing materialistically and spiritually. But uh, like what we will see in the book of Kings, it is our job really to just do our part to keep it that way. We need to do our part to keep it that way, to stay united, to continue to do things for the Lord. Uh, we need to stay focused on God and stay focused on His Word and rely on Him only. And it is then... That the blessings and unity and the advancement of the gospel will come. Now, uh, while tonight, again, it's introductory, I want to give you a brief overview of some of the main themes that we'll see in this book. And we'll go to several places of scripture. Uh, but this book has several different themes. Uh, and I'll just name them real quick for you before we go into it. But you have decline. You also have worship. You have unity and disunity. You have the word of God. You also have the weakness of man and also the sovereignty of God, those are all themes in this book, and my prayer is that the Lord will use what we find in His Word through this book to help this church and also individuals in it. So, uh, when we go through the book of First Kings, or really any book like this, when again that Old Testament book, as a lot of people are ignorant of those books, it's easy to wonder, well, what good will this book do for me? You know, outside of Bible trivia, what good is 1 Kings going to do, right? Uh, uh, what benefit is it going to have to go through this book? But you know, the Bible says 
in Romans 15:4, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Right? It says that we, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Not only that, but in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says some scripture was given. Right? No, it says all scripture was given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So look, God has something for you in the book of 1 Kings. Isn't that exciting? Every single week, God has something for you in this book. So there's a lot to gather from it. And so as I briefly mentioned the themes of this book, I just want to elaborate a little bit more on the theme. Don't think that just because this is an introductory message, you're going to get out easy. Now, I've got plenty of time. So first, decline. I don't look at the clock anyway. <laughs> the first is decline, okay? This is the theme in this book. It's a very unfortunate theme, but it's a very realistic one. Uh, it's a spiritual decline on the part of the Israelites, and this decline ends in judgment. Spiritual decline, of course, in the life of a believer or in a life or, or in the local church, it is destructive. You know, when we begin to be more focused on ourselves or something else besides God, we are in trouble. Uh, again, so often when things are going awesome and, thing, and God is just blessing us physically, we forget how much we actually need Him. We begin to become more and more independent and we fail to realize that God is not only all that we need, but in reality, He's all that we actually have. You understand that? Jesus Christ is really the only thing that you really have. He's everything. And you might be here today and you say, well, you know, I have a lot more than Jesus. I have a beautiful home and I have a wonderful family. I have a great income. I have a lot of things. But again, I repeat, if you are in Christ, He's all you really have. And you say, well, why is that? Well, look, because none of those things are going to last. None of it. The only things that are going to last is what you did for Him. The only things that are going to last is what's found in Christ. It's like that song that we sing here that says, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. And that, that the truth that all that we really have is in God, it's made very clear by a main person that's in the book of 1 Kings, and we're going to see... And that's Solomon. You understand Solomon? He had everything. He had more things than we probably all together will ever have. He had a lot of stuff. Uh, he had everything that any man could ever want. He had uh, money and wealth and fame and women. He had everything. He was rich. He owns, again, more than we could ever even comprehend. Yet, he wrote a book of the Bible that shows the emptiness of it all apart from God. Let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm going to jump around in like four, three or four other places in Ecclesiastes, so just get ready. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, look at verse 1. It says, in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1, Solomon said, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. Look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Now remember, this man had everything, physically, that he could ever want. And he said in verse 17, therefore I hated life, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, 
for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. <clears throat> verse 10 of chapter 5. It says, He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. Look at verse 15 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, look at verse 15. It says in verse 15, All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in wickedness. Look at verse 16. Be not right so much, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not over much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? So look, uh, he is just, he's not really excited about life here, is he? He has everything that he could ever want physically. Do you understand the point here? That word vanity, by the way, is written in this book 28 times. And it means nothing. It means useless. It means meaningless. So he is saying a man that had everything physically is making it clear, hey, life without God is empty and it's useless. Now look, without an eternal perspective in view... That's exactly all that life is. It is hopeless. So in Ecclesiastes, we, we, we learn that without God, we cannot be satisfied, even if we possess the whole world. And all is vanity without God. You will never have true joy apart from Christ. So we know he was, that Solomon, he was a, a wise man. But here he was, working through issues. He had problems. He had issues. And, and he shows us that just life is meaningless apart from God. So if we see physical things more important than the things of God, then we will decline spiritually. And that right here, that brings us to the, another theme in this book, and that is the theme of worship. We talked about this a lot in the book of Joshua. You know, every person in here worships something. All of you worship something. I worship something. God calls His people to worship. Not Him and something else, but no, Him alone. He calls His people to do that. He called his people to do this back then, and he calls his people to do that even now. Uh, but this book tells us a very sad story of idolatry amongst God's people. Let's go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. And look at, we'll just look at one verse in this chapter for a moment. Now remember, in chapter 9, God had warned Solomon, hey, don't let this happen, don't let idolatry take place. Well, let's look at 1 Kings chapter 11, look at <clears throat> verse 33. It says, Because that they have forsaken me, and have worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, Chemish, the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the children of Ammon, and have not walked in my ways to do that which is right in mine eyes, and to keep my statutes and my judgments, as did David, his father. So again, they were told before, okay, hey, worship only God. Stay away from idols. Yet, here we have the worship of idols. So as a focus, one of the themes of 1 Kings is to uh, forsake false idols and to worship God. We too are called in our day to do the same. There are numerous verses all throughout Scripture, in the New Testament even, that warn against and call out idolatry. 1 John chapter 5, you know how that book closes out? And we'll see that someday. Uh, but that book closes out by saying this, Little children, keep yourselves 
from idols. And that's not just talking about like a little statue that we go worship. It's not talking about falling down and bowing down to the sun or a tree. It's not talking about just that. There are many idols today, even amongst Christians. Many idols. And there are idols amongst believers, and they are even subtle to the point that they don't even realize it's an idol. Now you may say, okay, well how do I know when, when something is becoming an, an idol, or if it already is? Well, if it takes precedence over the things of God, it's an idol. It's an idol. And that includes a person, that includes a hobby, that includes a job, it includes a possession, and I have seen this happen many times. And I'll just give you one example. I have not seen this happen here, and I, I pray that I never will. But I've seen it happen in several other places. I, I've seen idolatry take over good Christian families. I've seen parents allow sports to become an idol in kids' lives. They miss week after week after week of church because of travel ball or just school sports in general. And that right there is setting a terrible example for your child right off the bat. If sports are more important than the things of God at an early age, then you can guarantee it's not going to stop there for your child. It's not going to stop. Now, I thank the Lord that my parents prioritized God over sports in my life from the start. I remember uh, specifically many times where my dad, he would go up to the coach at the very start of the season, and he would say, my kids will not be playing baseball on Sunday, and they're not going to play on Wednesday night. Uh, if there's practice on Wednesdays, they can practice until it's time for church, and uh, then I'm taking them to church. Amen. And you know, the coaches never had a problem with it, and if they did, they never verbalized it. But listen, I want my kids to know that God matters more than a game. Amen. Don't you think God matters more than a game? Then let's show our kids that they, He actually does. And again, that's, not, that's just one example. There's so many... There's so many different directions you could go in that, but that's just one that I, I thought of. That's a, a modern-day idolatry in the American church today, but it's rampant everywhere. So this book, it starts out with a time of unity. The kingdom becomes divided because of idolatry, and that brings us to another theme, which is unity and division. Let's go to First uh, Kings chapter 12. You should be already there in First Kings. Uh, idol worship. Idol worship is what led to the division of the kingdom. Look at chapter 12, verse 16. It says in verse 16, So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse to your tents, O Israel. Now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. But as for the children of Israel, which dwelt in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. So uh, in, in this chapter, and you go to chapter 14, that's really the, the division. That's where the, the kingdom splits, okay, the northern and southern kingdom. Uh, but it really, it shows us here that idolatry ultimately led to the divisions of the kingdom. And uh, again, there would be the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom with different kings. But the book of 1 Kings, it shows us the importance of unity, the importance of unity. The kingdom would become divided and it would be destructive. And, and likewise, as believers and as a church, it will be of utmost importance that we stay unified and like-minded or else it will bring destruction. And by the way, that's exactly what Satan wants. He does not want our church to be united. He does not want our church to be like-minded. He does not want our church to worship one God. He does not want our church to serve the Lord. And if he can cause us to be ununited and just to have this unity, then he can really stop a lot of things that we can do for God. Hey, we can't afford to do that. There's too many people in Holton, Maine, dying and going to hell. We can't afford to do that. 
So because the Israelites decided to worship idols, the kingdom would be divided. And again, we'll see that in time and detail. But, you know, idolatry happened because of a neglect of God's word. And that brings us to another theme, which is the word of God. And, and we know we've seen this in, in Joshua law, but, you know, if we stay true to the word of God, unity is not going to be a problem. You stay true to the word of God every day in your life and unity with other believers is not going to be an issue. You have a problem with another believer, then stay true to the word of God and it will become reconciled. You'll be fine. It'll work out. And so this book, it's, it's about the word of God. We know in the past, again with Joshua, as we just got done studying that, that God constantly told his people how to live. He constantly said, obey my word, observe my statutes. And uh, the people were to live by God's word, but they would fail to do so as we kind of already saw. But the importance of following God's word, it cannot be overstated. It cannot be over-talked about. It's so important. And we're going to see that the prophet Elijah, he constantly points the Israelites back to the word of God. We will see that he constantly points them to what God said in an effort to get them to a place of repentance and worship of Yahweh. And as children of God, we are to be people of the book. We are to know the word of God. Just like Paul always talks about in Sunday school. And again, you can't overstate it. We are to love the word of God. We are to obey the word of God. And if we don't, then just like the Israelites, we're going to fall into trouble. Now, we need to do more than just know it. We need to heed it, right? Let's go to James chapter 1, a well-known passage. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Look at verse 22. James chapter 1, verse 22. It says, but be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And by the way, it's very easy to hear the word of God. It's a lot harder to do the word of God. You can be here tonight, or any, any given Sunday, you can hear the word of God, but what you do after is what really matters. Look at verse 23. If, for if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man, beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way. And straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. So you see something's wrong? Fix it. Don't just leave it. Fix it. Uh, just like you would with a mirror. But without a doubt, we know that the Israelites, they knew the word of God. They knew the word of God in Joshua. They knew the word of God in Kings. And they heard the word of God, but they did not heed the word of God. So look, may we not be like they were. This Again, a theme is the word of God. And also another theme, this book has a theme of weakness. And you know what? Whenever we neglect the Word of God, our weaknesses become even more exposed. They do. Uh, it becomes even more difficult uh, to deal with. And uh, as far as this book being a, a book with the theme of weakness, this book shows us that even human leaders have limitations and human leaders have weaknesses. You know, we're going to see that Solomon, he did many great things for God. He was very wise, and, and may I remind you, the wisest man to ever live, yet he got involved in sinfulness, and he drifted away from God. And we already know from Ecclesiastes, where, where we read that he struggled with his purpose, and once he got off track, his weaknesses were exposed, and it overtook him. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 11. 
Amen, she says. I know what she's saying. I can speak, baby. <laughs> if nobody else says amen, she will, right? <laughs> First Kings 11. Look at uh, verse 2. First Kings 11, verse 2, the Bible says, Of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn their hearts, they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love, and he had seven hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines. And look what it says, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as he was, uh, as was the heart of David his father. This is incredible, and it should help us see the importance of relying on God. You know what? If the wisest man to ever live could have his heart turned away from God, you know what? You can. And by the way, I'll say I can. Weakness. Again, Solomon, he was a leader. He was somebody that did great things for God. Uh, that, that just shows us right there that even godly leaders are susceptible to weaknesses. They are, they are able to fall into sin. Which, by the way, is a, a great reason for you to pray for church leadership, including your pastor. Nobody is above sin. So you should pray about that. But uh, it shows us that, that God would have us cleave to Him because we can easily get our hearts turned away from God. And man, it's just the fact that uh, his wives and, and the people that he was with, it turned his heart away from the Lord. That right there should show us that we ought to be careful who we uh, hang around and who we invest time with. But this is why it's also important to do, as Jude says, and keep ourselves in the love of God. This is why it's important to constantly be looking to the Lord and daily abiding in Christ. So weakness, that's another theme. And But lastly, in addition to all of this, there's a, a main theological interest in this book. And that really is the relationship of a sovereign God to the Israelites. From the very first chapter of 1 Kings to the very last, God is seen in sovereign control even in world governments. And that right there should be an encouragement to us to know that regardless of who is in control of government and other things, that God is ultimately in control overall. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Every king that we're going to see in the book of Kings, God put them there. Look at Daniel chapter 2. It says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 20. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, it says, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changeth the time and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that knoweth that no understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. That's, that's pretty encouraging, I think, to know that God sets up rulers, he sets up kings, he sets up presidents, he sets up government authorities in general, whether we like them or not. God is in control. 
So thank God for that. Hey, even though, even if you don't like the president, you know what you can do? You can do is what Daniel says here. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. He's in control. He set him up. He put him there. So all that happens is according to God's perfect plan. And we're never going to be able to comprehend that on earth. It's just so many moving parts. But we need to accept what God has established and in turn pray for those that are in authority over us. Again, whether we like them or not. And again, there's just so much in this book, and we're going to see, and, and I'm excited to see how God will use it. But as we look at these main themes and, and many other subjects, as we, go, as we just go through verse by verse, I think it's going to be a help. Uh, this book is going to, if we allow it, it will speak to every person. It will help our church. And whether we're going through turmoil or chaos or problems or things are going great, God can use this book. Every book of the Bible has something for us. And it can give us what we need. So I, I encourage you, uh, maybe over the next few weeks, just maybe take the time to read the book of First Kings. You know, and that will help prepare your heart. And the Lord can use that uh, to help you see what He wants you to see as we go through this book. So let's go ahead and just bow our heads and close our eyes. We'll have a...